This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review. It's Tuesday. We are talking about extubation readiness. Lindsay, how's everything going? Good. Made it through Monday. Going on to Tuesday. Great. Daphna, everything cool? I'm feeling good. Lindsay's doing all the hard work, so I'm feeling (laughs) really good, and I'm learning a lot. So. Yeah, you know that like really phrase, crazy. like walking a mile in somebody's shoes. I feel like I just walk like six miles in your guys' shoes. And now I really appreciate all the work you guys do every single week. <laughs> That's nice. It's Thank nice. you. Well, um, no, we appreciate that. It took it took some time and uh, it's, it's uh, yeah, we can tell stories about our initial recordings and all the, 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 the yeah, the false starts and yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, no, so it, it's, it's been great so far. Yesterday, we talked about some of the history of mechanical ventilation and and where how did we get to the point where we were able to ventilate babies invasively and and then we went over some of the literature about volume trauma barotrauma and really why we need to try to extubate these babies as much as possible uh, what are you talking to us about uh, today Lindsay um, so we're going to talk a little bit more about you know do we have any data or evidence to kind of try to help us determine when is the when is the time to successfully extubate and just like mm-hmm. looking a little bit more into the literature of that um you know i kind of um introduced that review article the the art science or gamble of, mm-hmm. of extubating especially the extremely premature you know neonates right that's where i think we feel the the most pressure um because we talked about last last episode is you know, those tiny, you know, I think nano preemies or, you know, 22 mm-hmm. to 24 week infants, that's the ones where like everyone thinks like, oh, maybe we need to get them off. But we know those are the ones that can actually have, you know, the most bad outcomes or bad side effects of extubating mm-hmm. them too soon. Mm-hmm. So we're going to dive a little bit more into some of the literature of, of looking at that. Um, and in that review article by Dr. Santana is a senior author. Um, you know, they talk about um, just studies looking at extubation failure and, you know, first, can we even define extubation failure? Um, so, you know, a lot of the big studies have are been all over the place, right? Some people use 72 hours, some people use seven days, some people use like 10 days. So, I mean, first, like our definition of when do babies fail extubation is, is kind of all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you talk to adults about it, they're like, if the adult fails the ventilator in 24 hours, like it's done, right? Like, but our neonates, um, I think sometimes, you know, they're just so resilient, mm-hmm. but also sometimes um, we give, we might give them steroids, we might not, um, you know, so sometimes I wonder if like those babies who fail at 10 days, did the steroids get out of their system or did, you know, did they just start having more apnea, bradycardia, as DSATs? And then somebody, we don't know the threshold of when is when is too many, right? So everybody has a different kind of threshold of when you reintubate for that because some babies very obviously fail right away and their lungs are too immature, but many of them maybe kind of hang on for a while. Then you try more caffeine, maybe you try more steroids, maybe you try more CPAP, right? And yeah. so 
it's just kind of all over the place. Number one of how do we even define when you fail exudation? How can we yeah. study it if we don't even really have a great definition for it is, you know, really hard in the literature, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, there's this really cool graph that they that in the apex study, which we'll talk about a little bit more, I think, in some of the trials when we run into the run into the, some of the nitty gritty of the papers looking at this. But, you know, respiratory reintubations for babies who failed in less than seven days was definitely the most common, right? Less than seven days. A lot of times it's going to be a respiratory reason for why they get reintubated. But like the eight to 14 days, it starts almost becoming more 50-50. Was it a respiratory reason that the baby needed to be intubated or was it something else? Yeah. And that eight to 14 days, I think that's the period where you wonder about, did they come off the steroids? Were there more spells at all? Somebody, somebody else switched, switched service and didn't want to tolerate those spells. Who knows? <laughs> and reflux, then, is a, reflux is a big one too. I mean, you, you yeah. suddenly, you lost your airway protection and, and potentially we know babies do reflux uh, very commonly. Could you have micro aspirations, things like that, that compromise your, your, your respiratory status? I mean, all these things start clouding the picture for sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think the, the, the studies show that after 14 days, you know, probably it's not likely respiratory anymore, but it, it, it's really hard to draw a line of like, you know, you don't want and not very many studies that I've seen actually use that like 14 days for res, respiratory okay. failure cut off. I think it's more like the three to seven, maybe 10 days is when they'll say like, okay, if you've made it 10 days, you've, you've successfully extubated. But yeah. It's a little bit all over the place, which makes us... and, it, and it makes and it makes it hard to study as well, right? I mean, yeah. I think the longer the longer the endpoint you're measuring from the initial sure. intervention, it becomes more difficult to control for all the variables that can potentially creep in in between those two time points. Um, and so, Dr. Santana, I think uh, it's one of the questions that we'll definitely be asking him about, like how do we okay. measure success in that field? Because it's it's just yeah, it's it's ripe for 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 issues. Yeah, and it'll continue to change, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> just playing catch up with definitions. <laughs> so I, I don't think, I don't, I don't know if you guys have uh, reviewed this yet, but I heard some inside scoop that there is a new recent paper by Dr. Santana and um, Wisham Shalish in the, that group called um, Age at First Excavation Attempt in Death or Respiratory Morbidities in the Extremely Preterm Infants. So um, this paper, you know, hot off the presses, just came out and was kind of looking at that a little bit more. Like, at what age did the babies fail in this big um, study cohort that they did? Um, and so this was from that APEX study, and only um, half of, and only half of the infants, less than 1250 grams, were actually excavated in that first week of life. So we just spent the time talking about, oh, more time on the ventilator could cause them issues. But in reality, like in less than 1250 gram infants, only half of them can be extubated in that first week of life. So, you know, that just tells us that as neonatologists and seeing those infants needing higher vent settings, you know, they might be too sick or have too high of settings that you feel comfortable extubating them or you know, maybe in those small babies, like the reality of trying to get them off the ventilator that early is, is not really that realistic. Mm -hmm. um, in that paper, they did say that 24% of the less than 1250 gram neonates never needed intubation or mechanical ventilation. And I think we all know that, know that. there's some big, mm -hmm. robust babies you can put on CPAP in the delivery room and get them out and, and, and never look back. But those are the ones I think were set up for success, right? The mom got steroids. Maybe they had some labor stress hormones to really get, you know, their, their sodium channels going, their ENAC channels going. And, um, but, but 
not very many of them, right? 75% of the babies less than 1250 grams needed to be intubated. That's, that's kind of a lot. And, and then like on the even lower spectrum, I think they talked about the 23 to 24 week infants and in the little graph that they showed in 23 weeks, none of those babies were successfully extubated by the first week of life. And at 24 weeks, only a handful were. So again, those babies who are, you know, kind of in the most critical phase and in that like spectrum of the limits of viability, um, you know, it's so hard to expect them to be extubated right away. Um, and, you know, they, they talked about the ones that did have early failures. Sometimes they did have increased mortality rate um, and pretty dramatic failures, right? Sometimes there's pulmonary hemorrhage. Sometimes there's IVH associated with it or neck, which makes me wonder, was there like yeah, we should have physiology like a, going like, on? Like, like, a t like a TV rating on these papers, because at the point of that paper, when they described the four patients that died after extubation, you're like almost want to look away. It's it's mm -hmm. horrifying. You, you you see yourself in the pos in that position and you're like, holy moly. I think one of them had like pulmonary hemorrhage and it's like, holy shit. Uh, um, right right it makes you like i never want to extubate anyone <laughs> yeah, and, and i think this is where weeks. i mean we 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 went over this paper on on our last mm -hmm. journal club but i think what's very interesting is the discussion that you're bringing up about like early success versus early failure and that i think there's this idea sometimes especially i'm a victim uh i'm a victim of that and and you're in the icu you're like what's the worst thing can happen i extubate and then if he fails or baby fails mm -hmm. i'll reintubate right it's like no big deal but there's 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 significant associations with with a failed extubation and so um yeah well and i think that's why i mean we're delineating this very very small group the nano preemies right because you we can't we can't compare a 1250 gram baby to to a, a this this smallest group i mean you know the way neonatology is today a 1250 gram baby is a big baby right so you know they're just they just don't have the same uh, physiology so no i think i think you're right daphna it's hard to even like you know while that's how we design all of our studies right mm -hmm. less than a thousand grams less than 1250 grams but yeah there's a big difference in those gaps and you know you can see the babies who are 28 weeks and mm -hmm. you imagine bigger right it gets us up to like 75 percent of them were successfully excavated in that first week of life so your expectations can be very different for those bigger mm -hmm. kids like you can get them excavated but you know, the, the smaller kids, which I'm a little bit biased practicing here at the University of Iowa, where we very, you know, carefully keep them intubated on high frequency and, you know, protect them at all costs until they're much bigger and really showing us that they're ready to extubate. But I think it is because of, you know, those horrible outcomes that have been reported that could happen, especially in those the, the most fragile infants. Lindsay, let me ask you something. Then you 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 seem to um, you seem to like the Apex cohort and the and the work that that was done for that study. And I'm just putting myself in the shoes of somebody who is not, I guess, interest not interested, but who's not uh, who's not spending a ton of time looking at this kind of data. Mm -hmm. And I think what people may get out of the Apex study is that like, oh, like they tried some form of algorithm to see if you can predict extubation readiness, and it didn't work, or it was not it was not ready for prime time yet. Um, why? Why do you? Th where's the promise there? Why do you think there's so much to be learned from that cohort specifically? Because if you look at, if you just read the abstract, it may just seem like an algorithm that was tried that that had like seventy three percent success, and that's not good enough for NICU standards. So moving on, right? But it seems that there's more there. There's a lot of 
good data points, isn't there? Um, ben, you're trying to jump to like the cumulative of what I want to talk about for Wednesday. Ooh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> so this is this is the like uh, the bait of like everybody come back for Wednesday. Um, but I, I I think there's promise, right? I think there's promise. That's why we're that's why we're delving into all the all the different iterations. And I mean, they, this is the Apex study was a big study. They wrote like four or five papers on it, right? As you should with any study that with five centers and you know multi year of, of collecting data. Um, so, so we'll get to that. Hold on to that thought. Is, okay. is there, is there hope? Yes. Mm -hmm. I think yes. <laughs> um, but I guess con continuing with that, that APEX study is the other thing that they published was their kind of, um, table one, which showed the babies who su succeeded and babies who failed extubation, mm -hmm. um, and kind of looking at that study. So just as the baseline of that, that was less than 28 week babies, less than 1250 grams, like, like we said, and they were actually looking at spontaneous breathing trials in the babies. So they were giving those babies um, five minutes just on ET tube CPAP, spontaneous breathing trials to see if they would um, succeed to learn more from that. Um, but um, what they found was in those two co categories, the ones that succeeded and the ones that failed, the ones that succeeded extubation were just bigger and older, right? Higher gestational age, bigger birth weight. I don't think any surprise there. But then if you look at the respiratory settings, I honestly didn't think they were all that different. Well, they might have been significantly different. Like the median PEEP for the babies who succeeded was five and the ones who failed was six. I think we've all probably extubated babies from a PEEP of six before, right? Like, you know, I, I don't know if it's like clinically that much different. And like the PIPs weren't that much different, right? The ones who succeeded, the, the median PIPs were 13 and the failures, they were 15, you know, not think, all that I much different. What was interesting about that study specifically, like you said, is that if you look at the numbers, it's it's relatively similar. But yeah. where you can start seeing the the explanation for some of these extubation failure, in my opinion, is in the ranges. So mm -hmm. um, if you look at, for example, like you said, like the the, the pH, right? Um, or actually, let's just look at the PCO2. The, the PCO2 at extubation was like 44 for the success mm -hmm. and 47 for the failure. It's really good. I mean, I, I've extubated babies with much higher CO2s. But then when you look at the range, it's for the success, it was 37 to 47. But for the failures, it was 40 to 56. And then you can see that that the range just creeps a little bit wider um, for for some of these values, especially like you're you're talking about the PEEP, or not the PEEP, the PIP. It was 13 for the failures was 15, but the range was 12 to 15 in the success, 14 to 17 in the failure. So there's you you can start seeing a little bit where where there may be some some increased variability because because there there's got to be there's got to be something that could we could detect right. Otherwise okay. otherwise there's no hope. But but not that much different, right? Because no. this is a cohort that, that all the physicians thought the babies were ready to extubate, right? The physicians had made the decision, we're going to do an extubation trial. And then, you know, they collected data on these these infants um, and they connect, con collected like continuous cardiorespiratory data as well. And, you know, um, all their vent settings, everything. So, it you know, it, it's fascinating. In this study, 20% of the kids failed. So... You know, the clinicians were wrong 20% of the time, um, which is like one in five, right? Mm -hmm. 
and that's the question that we we need to ask Dr. Santana as well is this this idea that like if we had a hundred percent extubation rate then 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 you're ventilating too long. I mean right. you, you you're 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 not giving people a chance. Um, so what is what is the number? What is the correct number that shows a balanced approach okay. balanced approach to uh, to ventilation? Yeah, no, it's we'll it's that. interesting. Um, I guess going back down to kind of like my other favorite plot, favorite plot from one of the APEX studies is they kind of um, showed the scatter plot of the ones who succeeded and, and the ones who failed. So like we've talked about, the bigger kids, if they drew lines at like greater than 28 weeks and greater than um, around 1,200 grams, like a lot of those kids succeeded. So like we we talked about, those those bigger, older kids are kind of like in their own category. Most of them can successfully extubate after they get their surfactant or maybe whatever they needed for their initial stabilization. But then in the younger groups, it's, you know, it's scattered all throughout, right? There's a 600 gram 23 weaker who was successfully extubated and then one right next to it that wasn't. Can I, <laughs> and then can I you also... So, yeah. so for the people who who are listening in the car, this this is a fascinating graph, mm -hmm. and and you have on the y axis you have the gestational age in weeks, right, and on the x axis you have your weight at extubation, and it's a scatter plot of like the successes and the failures, and and the successes I think are plotted in black, and the failures are plotted in red, and the and the group created a box like a, a boundary, um, probably around like twenty eight twenty nine weeks, mm -hmm. okay, and. 1200 grams. So there's like a box that goes across the y-axis at 28 weeks about, and then 1200 grams on the x-axis. And what Lindsay is talking about is outside that box. So if you were older, more than 28 weeks or bigger, more than 1200 grams, all the dots are black, like mm -hmm. success all around. But when you enter the box, there is no pattern. Like the dots are one over the other and there's no discrimination almost like, like you were just saying, like some 600 grammars, some failed, some <laughs> succeeded. There's, there's one actually, there's like one that looks like a, a little chemistry molecule. It's like you have one that's one that's 600 gram at 2400 at 24 weeks that succeeded. And next to it, there's a failure. It's like, they're almost like the identical <laughs> same babies and yet completely different outcomes. Yeah, no, I, I, this, this, this graph was actually in the supplemental material, but I like grabbed it. And um, I, I think it's one of the best graphs that to teach this and mm -hmm. to get to your point a little bit more about machine learning and algorithms, right? Like, so this graph is just based off completely gestational age and birth weight, but you can see that's why none of the algorithms based on just that would ever work, mm -hmm. right? How is the machine going to learn on this data? The machine will say all babies greater than 28 weeks and 1200 grams will succeed. And we know that there's always those kids that potentially could fail for some reason, right? They had yeah. worse lungs than expected for some reason, or they had, um, you know, edema in their trachea from being from on a trainee trying to intubate too many times. I don't know, you know, like there's, there's lots of different reasons. Um, and so that's where, you know, some of these algorithms struggle because that's why you need to get these big cohorts and big data sets. And it can be, it can be difficult to learn and train on these data sets. While we say that 20% failure seems like a huge number in the realm of machine learning models, 20, only 20% like failures for the machine to learn on is actually really small and low, low mm -hmm. numbers. And so hard for them to make um, good predictions in that area as well. So I guess what I'm taking away from this discussion today is that we don't really have 
a clear, I mean, I think there's there's a, a few items when we're talking about determinants of successful extubation. It seems that obviously, as probably everybody who's listening knows, the the higher the gestational age, the higher the weight, the more likely it is to be successful. But when it comes to everything else, um, I think many people have tried to add another combination of variables, whether it is pH, PIP, but we don't really have a set that people, there's there's no consensus around a set of values that people rely on to determine successful extubation. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. And we'll talk a little bit more tomorrow about, you know, what people have tried to use from what we have to create what kind of prediction algorithms, machine learning, logistic regression, you know, different different methods to try to help us, right? Because we don't want to take that one in five gamble. What can we what can we do to try to make us feel better? This is the right decision to extubate this baby at this time. Um, what tools do we have in our toolkit? So we'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow since we know that we don't have standard guidelines of this is what you need to extubate exactly right now. I've been looking forward to Wednesday. I think everybody has their own local guidelines. I remember I still I still have in my bookshelf right behind me, the the extubation readiness guideline from my fellowship. And I think it's interesting, the papers you're going to present tomorrow, because they're going to show how certain proposals, how do they fare when it comes to uh, successful extubation. Um, and and let's see what what some of these these guys have, have used. So that, that's going to be fun. Sounds good, friends. See you tomorrow. All right. Lindsay, thank you. That was fun. See you tomorrow. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at nikupodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.